Welcome to the Top Order Podcast. Palpable excitement in the room here in Auckland. We're back in the same venue as a foursome for the first time since August, recording live from Fongaparoa. On the show tonight, we've got the New Zealand Test wrap-up, a perfect 10 for Ajaz, Coley's dismissal, selection dilemmas in the batting order, and of course, we'll talk a little bit about Ashes cricket. We've got swishes galore, all coming up on the Top Order Podcast. Stay tuned. Well, we've got to start really with perfect 10 for Ajaz in that New Zealand test wrap-up. The result didn't go the way, but only the third time that that's happened in the history of test cricket. Jim Laker and Anil Cumblay before him taking all 10 wickets in an innings. I've got to come to the spinner first to um, fizz up about this. Lippy, over to you. Oh look, yeah, look, it was it was lovely for India to pick up a, a win. Uh, first of all, just in this five match series that we've been having over an extended period of time, you know, obviously New Zealand uh, comfortably won the two games at, at home in in uh, New Zealand. We won the World Test Championship, and and you know then we you know drew that second game, and they they picked up that nice win. So look, good on that. But still, as you say, the New Zealanders uh, make all the headlines. AJ's Patel just brilliant, and that that phrase you know couldn't happen to a nicer guy. It, it gets overused. It really does. Like people say it all the time. But in this case, I really feel like it, it's worthwhile because he's someone that's worked so hard. He's someone that we talk about all the time. Like people have bring it up now. He's got doesn't have a New Zealand cricket contract because he doesn't get to play any tests at home. But there he is, and he's picked up ten wickets. He's done something. He's going to be in the record books for forever now, third all time. And just how good was that Ashwin dismissal? Boy, oh boy. That I could I could watch that on repeat all day long. So yeah, just just wonderful. I mean, someone someone else stopped me because I could be talking about this all day. Well, it's it's fantastic to be back, and it was just fantastic to watch that that AJ's performance. I mean, there are very very few cricket moments where you will remember where you were and who you were watching with when that happened. I was watching with my son, and I sort of pulled him aside, and I pulled my daughter aside, and said, "Come and sit and watch this because this happens." Very, very rarely in test cricket. My son asked me, Dad, how often does it happen? I said, it's only ever happened twice. And if he gets the next wicket, he will be the only person in the history of this country to get all 10 wickets in an innings. And sure enough, uh, he did one straight up in the air, comfortably pouched it at um, wherever it was in the field somewhere. And <laughs> and, 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 and it does, that doesn't matter. That detail is, is irrelevant. But AJS gets 10 and writes his name into the history books. Russian Ravinder said he was crapping his pants under that. That was <laughs> a nice comment. I would be too. And I've fielded lots of questions during the week from, from various punters asking me, if you were at the other end, where would you be bowling? And I said, I'd be bowling as far outside leg stump as I could possibly get and just making sure that no one lays bat on it until the guy at the other end gets 9 and 10. You know, funnily enough, I speaking about that, I saw some footage going around of one of Murali's 9-fers, and uh, I think Chaminda Vass got the last wicket, it was him, and he got an edge, and no one appealed for ages because they, they were obviously all thinking, <laughs> OK, like, let's get Murali. I think Henry Alonga was the batter. And he, everyone was kind of just standing around waiting, seeing what was going on. And then someone, I don't know who, someone from cover or something appealed. And uh, then, and then uh, it, that and umpire had to give it out. And he never played test cricket again. <laughs> Can you imagine if Ashwin had been at the other end? He would have deliberately trodden on his stumps just to stop <laughs> AJ's getting 10 for, wouldn't he? He hey, actually hey, got, hey. He got 11, not, didn't he, really? Because he, he didn't review a, a, what was, he was pretty confident, wasn't he? And didn't get any support from keeper or captain on that. Um, was it Jayant, I think? Um, I can't remember what it was, but it looked out to me. I, was, I couldn't believe they didn't go up for it. Yeah, I was like, pad first, pad first. And yeah, it showed on the replay that it was. 
Can we talk about the real travesty of this test match and the fact that he didn't get a man of the match award for how many wickets did he get? 14 wickets in a test. Only 12 people have got 15 wickets in a test in the history of test cricket, 2,400 test matches. How many wickets does he have to get to get a man of the match award? Can, how, can just, how biased is this towards batters? Can I this just check that? Are we all going to agree on this or is anyone taking the opposing oh, view? I, I disagree. Okay, sweet. We'll come to Raj for, <laughs> for, for a run because even I can't take the opposing view on this. How can you take 10 for in a game, even if a guy scores 150 and 60 odd? And, and not that get, happens all the time. And get man of the match. I, yeah, I, I just I just don't get it. So Raj, what's interesting? I haven't actually. We obviously we haven't canvassed each other's opinion on this, but I'm fairly certain that Stu's with me. You can't have a man of the match performance if you don't win the match. I don't think you can get. You you cannot give. I'll give you a great example. Whenever the Roosters are playing a grand final, they always <laughs> give the man of the match to the other team, even though the Roosters <laughs> win it. It just it, you cannot give the man of the match to it player in the team that has not won the match, Stu? When, whenever the Roosters make the final, listen to you, it's because it's, it's going to happen so often. Jeez, any any opportunity to bring that up. But look, actually, I I usually am in your camp, one, one million percent. I'm always, it's, it's about who makes the most important contribution to winning the match or deciding the outcome of the match. But in this case, I really, I, I, I have to agree with the others. I really think that this is something that in 10 years' time, we, we, you know, obviously if you watch the game, you're still going to remember that Mayan Kagawal scored a very, very impressive 150. But this is going to be remembered as, as AJ's Patel's test, and it always will be. And I just think that history will prove that that decision is, is the right one and, you know, that this man of the match is, is incorrect. I mean, he is in the most exclusive club in Test cricket. There's only three people in it. I can't think of very many more exclusive clubs. Maybe Damian Fleming's hat, hat, Damian Fleming's hat trick on debut club. Well, well I guess there's only exclusive. one guy who's got a quadruple century in Test cricket. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Um, but other than that, other than that, and you know the various other ones where only one player has done it. But you know there are very, very few more exclusive clubs, and he can't even get a man of the match award. That that I didn't that didn't sit well with me. They lost by a record amount. Isn't that what you're going to remember? That that's not AJ's fault. I know, but I don't know that we will remember that. And I and look, I I don't want to downplay that because that was obviously incredibly disappointing. And I mean, you know, I was thinking about how to kind of sum it up today that we we had this massive high that we were all buzzed up about. You know, it, social media was exploding. I was sitting in my room fist pumping by myself. And look, you just want to explain. You just want to clarify. <laughs> just want to okay, clarify. Okay. That, that maybe didn't come out, but high fiving, you know, jumping up and down, getting very excited, uh, you know, in my living room by myself. And then it, it was like, uh, you know, at Dreamworld or something, where you're going up on that high, tall tower, the, the big drop or whatever it's called, and you know, you get right to the top, and it's a wonderful view, and you're super excited, and then it's just this. Uh, Ross Taylor got bowled by that ball from Siraj, and it was just this massive rush down back down to earth and suddenly kind of the rest of the ride was just horrible you know it was it was really tough to watch after that and geez i mean ages must be you know you go and do something like that i, I feel and then he has I to bat like an hour and a half later well and, and then he's got to front up to all the media i mean he had to front up to media at, at t or wherever at the interval yeah and they were 38 for six and it's like geez he's really been let down there yeah, look, I suppose on the plus side for AJS, 10 for and two red inkers in the test match as well. So you know, he's had a, a perfect game in many respects. Um, let's move on, I think, to the, the New Zealand batting. Obviously, that's let you boys down in uh, 
uh, the history books in this particular test. And I think I'll probably just say that you, I think you're always going to remember Ajaz as 10 fat in this game. But I think linked with that is going to be the fact that they got their asses handed to them as well. So I, I don't think you're going to forget that, forget the result, but you might forget in 10 years time who scored the 150. I don't think you're going to forget um, who got the, the 10 for, but New Zealand's batting and, um, you know, some questions about Ross Taylor, um, maybe, you know, BJ Watling really missed in that lineup, providing that stoic middle order um, ballast. Where else are your concerns? Obviously no Kane, which made a big difference, but yeah, concerns for you boys. Yeah, I think I think there's questions about what the top order looks like for New Zealand going forward, uh, the futures of, of Taylor and, and Nichols in particular. That might be a bit harsh with, with with Nichols, but really outside of New Zealand, he's averaging under 30. Um, he scored runs uh, in the New Zealand summers. Can't take that away from him, but uh, you can look at uh, the manner in which they were scored. Uh, they, 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 you know, they, they they were questionable. He was given multiple chances on a lot of those uh, you know recent hundreds that he scored, and then you've got. Will Young, you've got Devin Conway, you've got Rachin Ravindra who's batting out of position at the moment. We don't know what his role is going to be. What does this New Zealand order look like when Ross, T- uh, when uh, Kane Williamson and Devin Conway are fit? And you can throw Daryl Mitchell in there. He's acquitted himself really, really well over the past little while uh, in all forms of the game, and he deserves a shot at test level as well. So there's plenty of rising talent to replace Ross Taylor if and when he decides to hang up the gloves and, and walk away from test cricket. How much rope do you think he's still got, boys, the New Zealand guys? How much rope has Ross Taylor still got in the minds of the selectors and perhaps in the minds of the public? Yeah, it was interesting. I saw um, I saw some quotes from Gary Stead today actually around, um, you know, people were asking him that very question. And he, he sort of didn't give a, an unequivocal answer because, you know, sort of, of course not. He, you know, talked that it's great that there's a load of depth, which is absolutely right. The fact that you guys have pointed out, I mean, that's why we're having this conversation, right? Because there's so many, there's so many players that have put their hand up. I know it's kind of weird to be talking about that in a game where we didn't get any runs, but that there's all these other people, you know, obviously Glenn Phillips was over there um, and he didn't even get a chance to bat. Uh, but, you know, I really think in that same sense, it's kind of a bit silly to think, okay, well, he's had, or for these guys that have had this two test series, that batting was always going to be tough in these conditions, right? No one expected us to go over there and score piles and piles and piles of runs. It was also, you know, we lost the toss in both games, we're batting second. I don't think that's an excuse for getting bowled out for 62. I'm not, I'm definitely not trying to say that, you know, we were hard done by here, but I think we have to realize, like, two tests ago, was the World Test Championship, and Ross Taylor batted the absolute perfect innings that we needed. It was a calmness that kept, you know, that was a situation that could have gone completely wrong for New Zealand there, and him and Kane got us through. But, you know, you're you're 100% right that he is going to have to get some runs soon. I think that he has time to answer your question there, mm. Baldy. I think he does have a bit of rope, but uh, the reason I say that is is what Stu said earlier. When when the bl- alarm bells started ringing for him was when Ross Taylor got bowled. That's when we were like, okay, we're in a little bit of trouble here, and we need to we need to hunker down a bit, which um which we didn't do. But I think he I think he's got at least the summer mm. to sort it out. But yeah, he, he really needs to start scoring some runs. He wants to continue. Yep. I also think he's just probably got enough credit in the bank to make that call on his own as well. If he's thinking, do you know what? I'm I'm coming to the end. 
I'm, you know, I would hope there's a little bit of sentimentality for a guy that's given so much to New Zealand cricket because you've got to say he's in the conversation with as, as your best in your best six batters, isn't he? Oh mate, um, he's one of our best batters of all time. Yeah. There's there's no there's no debate about that, and and the, I'm I'm 100 confident that they will give him. You know, that conversation won't just happen that he'll get dropped. I mean, I will be stunned and I'll be very saddened if that happens. Yeah. That'll be a conversation that happens with Ross, with the selectors. Yeah. He's, you know, he said it last year, he said he wanted to go through the 2023 World Cup. He's been an, an excellent one-day player. It's just that we don't play any one-day cricket anymore. And I think that, that hurts him. That hurts, that's hurt him a lot. And that's hurt a lot of our players, the fact that they actually haven't played. I mean, Ross Taylor hasn't played a game of cricket since that World Test Championship final. Yeah, and that was, and just touching on, and we'll touch on spin again, um, because that was the excuse made for Will Somerville by many. Will Somerville hasn't played very much cricket for a long, long period of time. Ross Taylor is the same. Everyone who has been based in Auckland or lives in Auckland have not been able to play first-class cricket or prepare for for that Test Series. And for some of them, it showed. For others, they got 10 for so, you know, performance is performance. But that didn't show, in the, it showed in the first test for Ajaz. I think we're, you know, if we think about the conversation we had last week, we were saying, look, the spinners for New Zealand were, were pretty average. And then uh, Ajaz has come out and bowled so much better. And what he did was able to build that pressure. He was able to be a lot more consistent. Mm. This pitch was a lot different, um, which obviously helped. Like it had a lot more in it, a bit more bounce and a bit more fizz, which helps when you actually can turn the ball and put it in the right areas, then something's going to happen. So therein lies the therein lies the issue for me is that we're talking about Ajaz Patel. He's taken ten for, but he's never taken a wicket for New Zealand in New Zealand, and you're asking Somerville to be the second spinner to that. Mm. Where does he fit into the New Zealand teams going forward? I mean, his, his unfortunately his best contribution was that hundred ball um, innings that he had in the second innings of the first test where he um, helped us in that in that draw. And then you've got Ruchan Ravindra who really outbowled him in the second innings of that second test. So if that's what Ruchan Ravindra's role is going to be, he's an attacking spinner. What? And, and can bat in the top six. And, and can bat in the top six. So so what, what, oh, what's the future look, look like? I, I think, sadly, that's this is the end of Will Sumble's test career. I, I would be stunned if he plays another test for New Zealand. And I think that's a real shame because it was a not, not necessarily a shame that he'll never play again. And that that's not necessarily even to do with him. It's because of our conditions. We won't, like... I mean, Ajaz might not play a test this, this summer. This summer, he might not feature for New Zealand again. He'll probably be in squads, and he'll probably then go on the tour to England. And then I think we, well, I think it's to be decided whether we go to Pakistan or whether we play in, in the UAE for, I think, September or October or some sometime at the end of next year. But, you know, Will, Will Somerville was not going to be in line to play a game until maybe that tour again. Anyway, and, and the fact that he, you know, he hasn't bowled well, he's 37 years old, you know, I, I just think it's sad because he was a good news story beforehand. He came to Test Cricket really late in his career, played a big role in, in a very important series win for us and, yeah, just didn't bowl very well. And I guess the shades of that with England as well at the moment with Jack Leach, who can't get a game at home at the moment, I think he's going to be helped with the fact that Ben Stokes might be back in that side. And when you've got that all-rounder or you've got that keeper that can bat in the top six, that helps you to balance the side and it ha- helps you to pick your best spinner. But I think, like you say, we're, we're unlikely to see Ajaz on, on home soil um, despite that uh, 10 wicket haul. That's a special club to be in, taking 10 for and then uh, being dropped from the next test. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Look, that probably would be a unique club, even more unique than Brian Lara's uh, quadruple century. While we're on this kind of topic, I just had a thought um, earlier today around, um, you know, there's been a lot made of the 
you know, New Zealand can't win in India. India can't win in New Zealand. All, like all the ho- nobody can win away. Winning away from home is such a massive deal now. Do like do we actually care about that? Because I think that one, if we do care about it, then something about the cricket calendar has to change, and it would mean that there has to be more tours where you actually go and you play warm up games and you get accustomed to the conditions. Because you know, I know that. Again, I'm not trying to make excuses for New Zealand. We played very poorly in that second test, aside from Ajaz. But the fact is that we went into that situation from the T20 World Cup. A lot of our players have been sitting at home in New Zealand. We went in and we had to play two tests in very unfamiliar conditions straight away without any warm-up games. Like If you actually want players to get better and be good at playing in all sorts of different conditions, the only way they're going to do that is if you expose them to those conditions. And they're actually it's actually a great time to actually do that now with COVID as well, having to be in the country, having to bring extra people. They're doing it with the Lions uh, in England at the moment. Another way to look at it is, is that they, they get rid of the toss. So the, the team that is away gets the choice of what they're going to do first. Uh, there's also, I heard a, at a... Um, when I was talking to some a fan of the pod last night, there was also a... Um, the, the fan of the pod. Yeah, the <laughs> fan of the pod. Um, th- there was also the thing about sort of daisy-chaining it, so whoever wins the toss in the first test, the next test the other team gets to, to do it, or if the loser the loser of the first test gets to choose the toss in the second test, uh, sorry, choose what they want to do in the second test. So th- there's ways around it, um, because at the moment, if India bat first in India, it's very hard to, to beat them. Yeah, look, I think a massive amount is made of it. We're going to talk about the Ashes in a little while. 29 overs is all England have managed in their warm-up. Contrast that the 2011 uh, or 2010-2011 series where England were victorious. They had games against Australia A, they had state games, and they deliberately said, we don't want these to be 14 aside and basically glorified middle practice. We actually want to go out and win games of cricket and prepare. But what I'd also say is they then tried to replicate that um, in 2013-14. They'd done a similar thing in uh, 2006 as well, and it didn't work. Um, I, at 2002-03 as well, I remember uh, Baldy and I were talking about this the other day. I watched Martin Love get 200 against England. He then got 150 against them, I think, in uh, the next game he played for Queensland and Australia A. We were worrying about how we're going to get Matthew Hayden out, and we couldn't even get Martin <laughs> Love out um, in the warm-up game. So, look, I, I do think the gone are the days where we're going to have that kind of tour. We, you know, we've got to live with the fact that we've got franchise cricket. That's going to take precedence in terms of the bank balance, but also in terms of some of the scheduling. So... A win overseas, I think, is even going to be even more rare than it's been in the last uh, the last twenty years. Yeah, well, and I, you know, I tend to agree that I don't think anything is going to change. But I think we maybe we actually just have to accept that, like, it's going to be very, very difficult for most sides to play in an overseas away test and win. And you know, whether that means away points in the World Test Championship become more valuable, or I don't know. There's, I think, we either just have to accept that as fans. And, and kind of stop overreacting because we always knew this was going to be a very tough test series. Mm. It doesn't excuse the performance, as I've said, but yeah. Okay. Should we quickly touch on the winning side? Should we quickly touch on the other A Patel that was influential in winning as well? Um, because Akshar Patel had a wonderful test match, 50 and, and 40-odd and wickets in both innings. And he might not play the next game for India either. Yeah, exactly. And and, and Mayank Agarwal, I'll admit I got this wrong, Mayank Agarwal dropped for 
uh, Shreyas Iyer, in my view. I wasn't aware of the Rahane uh, fake hamstring injury that, that <laughs> allowed him not to be selected. Uh, but certainly Maya Kagawa has put me to shame with a fantastic, probably match-defining knock, really, in that first innings to get India to 345, which was pretty much insurmountable uh, from that point on. So praise for those two players. Uh, and Coley had a net in the second innings and got himself to 35. Those, those three all-rounders that they have that are also frontline spinners, it just makes makes life so difficult for any team that's playing against them. And, and India's even handicapping themselves with that, that top middle order that they've got at the moment. Imagine if Kohli, Rahane and Pajara were scoring runs. Well, well, no one's got a hope. So, look, what, what, do we th- okay, what, what, what do we take away from India's performance in India? Uh, that they're very good at home. And, and they're, I mean... That they have three world class spinners, and I, like like I said last week uh, with about Axar, I I would love to see him play away from home because he he does have the tools to be a good spinner away from home. But but is it gonna you know he's just never gonna get that opportunity. And you know I the what they do so well I think at home is or what their success their sort of uh, way they've gone about things. If you think back to the England series, Rohit Sharma got got big scores and in this test Mayan Kargawal got that big score they can bat if they can get that bat first or even bat second if someone they just need one person to get a big score and then they can suddenly build so much pressure and th- those bowlers they just do not give you anything to, to get runs they don't give you an out and the, the difference in my view between those successful Indian bowlers and the less successful New Zealand ones is they had guys all around the bat they had guys attacking both sides of the bat in front of and behind the wicket which was the difference between R. Ashwin and Will Somerville, really. Will Somerville couldn't bowl with a guy on the offside and a guy on the leg side in front of the bat. Ashwin could, and so any mistake that the batsman made went to hand, whereas if a batsman made a mistake, and there were a few from the Indians in that series that Will Somerville was bowling to them, he attacked the outside edge of the bat but didn't have the fielder because they couldn't afford to have them there, and then, as a result, you know, no wickets taken. I'm glad you're talking about the English series there because... Where I was going with that question is, do you think that these pitches were more uh, more fair than the English series that we saw last year? Do you think England would have fared a lot better on these pitches than they did last series? I think they were arguably slightly better cricket wickets. The I still think they were pretty slow in the scoring rates. We talked about this on the last pod. I don't think you're going to bring the crowds back when you're scoring at you know between two and three. And over, I'd like to see in a little bit more pace and, and bounce, but definitely better cricket wickets and no real complaints, I don't think, in terms of it doing, um, you know, it being like a sandpit from from day one. Strength and depth is the key for India, in my opinion. Uh, we talked and you just mentioned Robert Sharma, not on that team list for me. He's one of the best three fo- format players going around. We've not even really talked about um, the seamers, but I think Siraj again was was pretty impressive. Excellent. Um, I, I think I actually think that was the winning of the match. Like I, I know that Agal, you know, I, I think that th- three wickets that he got won in the match in that moment. It was like okay, this game is this game's done. And, and then I think you add into the mix someone like Pandya, um, who can actually come in and almost replace Axar as that um, all rounder that's going to be able to provide some overs and still be a top batter. They've got a team for all conditions and all parts of the world, and they're going to be formidable with that That as long as they don't fall into the Christmas toys analogy that Raj was so fond of during the World Cup and not knowing um, who to play with. But Shreya Sire, Agarwal, 
Um, we've got Sharma on the sidelines. Kale Rahul. We've got Kale. You know, it, it really is an embarrassment of riches. And, and I think we could be talking about Indian dominance in the way that we talked about Australian dominance through um, the 90s. I think and we already are to, to some yeah. degree, haven't we? I mean, you know, I, you know, I've obviously play up that, you know, New Zealand is the World Test Championship. We number one, we were number one test side in the world. We've actually just lost that, unfortunately. Um, but it is very close uh, in those, we, and we certainly can win it back pretty soon. But I think it's fair to say that India, over the last five years, during that World Test Championship cycle, they have they have easily been the best Test team. I mean, they they've just got, like you say, so many players. I mean, what are they going to do for the South Africa series? And they've won away. So yeah. they've won away in Australia. It's probably the hardest venue to win away from if you're not Indian. Like the hardest venue to win in is India. The second hardest one to win is probably Australia at the moment. And they've won in Australia. Twice they, in a row. Yeah, twice in a row. Did they win in England? What was the series result in England? Was it 2-1? Oh, yeah. it, was, it was 2-1, but it's two not one. finished, remember? It's not finished, right. It's not yeah. finished. So it's yeah, one, with one to play. It'd be two each. Two yeah. each. Yeah. <laughs> two each. <okay. laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about Virat Kohli's dismissal. Uh, I think Lippy was quick on our social media and said, this is going to blow up, and it certainly did. Um, I know we've got some different views around the table because we have pre-canvassed um, all of this. Thoughts? Couldn't it happen to a nicer bloke? It's a very overused phrase. <laughs> um, so let's talk about let's talk about the umpiring process and let's talk about what we think of whether or not he was out or not out, right? Because the umpiring process, as it was followed, was followed correctly. So apart from they didn't call for the ball tracking. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, having, having for, it out without ball tracking. Having forgotten about that vital element of the process, the process of can you give me conclusive evidence to overturn my decision, the umpire was clear in his view that there was no conclusive evidence to overturn the decision and therefore the right outcome in inverted commas was reached. Now let's get to the important point. Did he hit it first or did it hit his pad first? I think the, the, it's getting blurred here a little bit, and, and that's where DRS is always going to be a bit blurry in that it falls to the side of what the umpire's decision is. And that's fine. We all know that. But I I feel like around the table and people I've spoken to here, if we were to just decide was that out or not, I think that most people will say that was not out. There was probably bat in that before it hit pad. But he was given out on the field and had there was no conclusive evidence to overturn it. I think that was the, the tricky part because, well, certainly when I was watching it, that on one angle, it looked like definitely bat first. Is that the mid angle from mid off? Yeah. Um, kind, of, kind of halfway on the side, right? Is that, yeah. is that not enough? Well, on another angle, it looked like definitely bad first. Yeah, but if you have one that says that there was bad there, is that but, not but enough? Which to one say? do you trust? And and you know the other one looked like they hit at the same time. So I I think that was the problem that it was so inconclusive that yeah, like like you said, Bully, that the umpire had no choice. You know, it's been sent up try or whatever. They have to just go with it because they don't really know. But I I think if you watch, I think if the third umpire watched that and goes, can I give this out or not, without any decision from the umpire then I think it's not out and the weird part about the law of cricket is if that was given not out it would have probably stayed not well, out 100% right it would have stayed, it would have stayed out, not yeah. out so the the margin for error is always in the favor of the umpire which is something that I'm growing increasingly in discord with in that the umpire's margin for error in decision making is really quite wide when you think about it I mean half a ball width over a, a set of stumps there's quite a lot of margin for error um, in terms of the, the the umpire getting that in their favor both ways yeah I guess this is part of a bigger 
bigger conversation around DRS, which we've had a couple of times. But I just want to bring up something completely unrelated to it, or related to it, but irrelevant to this decision that Please we're talking do. about. Uh, in the World Cup, 2020 World Cup final, when Aaron Finch got hit LBW, do you guys remember that? Early on, he came down the wicket, yep. he got hit, ball tracking had it hitting stumps, but they couldn't give it out mm. because he was more than three metres down the pitch. Like, that just doesn't, that's a cheat code. Just keep charging and get hit in front of the stumps. And well, that's what we do on Monday. That seems to work. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't make sense to me, right? If you're going to trust your DRS that much or tr trust your decision review system that much or ball tracking that much, you've got to use it the yeah. whole time. With that specific example, though, the reason that that, um, I think, is it two and a half metre rule or three? I think it's three metres. Yeah. Something like the that. reason that rule is there is because they say that the ball tracking isn't as accurate over that distance. So, therefore, that's why that... Um, comes in uh, again uh, with Baldy on this to, to be honest which uh, you know pains me to admit but we are talking about these margin of errors we've, we've increased the size of the stumps and that we're still seeing probably not the right decision from a cricketing perspective reach too often now mm. and it seems as if the protection is there for the umpires for them to be able to go well either way I, I've got a 50-50 bet here um, and that for the players is too much jeopardy, in my and, opinion. And my, my biggest problem with it is that we've lost our feel and common sense for making decisions for the umpires. If they see something and they think it's not out, they're giving it out because they think it's going to be reviewed and it's going to be overturned, or vice versa. Mm. And um, the, the guy in the box is, is is the guy in the box is stuck with that rule book, looking at what's what he can do to overturn it or, or not overturn it. And he's got to he's got to make the call by the book, unfortunately. But I don't think it's always the right thing to do. Well, on this occasion, there was a page stuck together because he didn't get to the ball tracking. <laughs> Guys, it's probably time for our ubiquitous swish. When we do come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the ashes. See you soon. Welcome back to the Top Order Podcast. Baldy's had to step in here because there's steam coming out of Binksy's ears. He's tilted like a 1980s pinball machine. At the news that Jimmy Anderson is out of the first test at the Gabba, not with a calf injury as first reported, but he is fit and has been rested for the game. To further compound your consternation, Adam, Mark Wood, Chris Wokes and Ollie Robinson have all been confirmed via social media reports for the first test with Stuart Broad in a shootout for, with Jack Leach for that fourth bowling position starting Wednesday at the Gabba. Pick your jaw up the floor, off the floor. Get back to us. Are you ready to go? Yeah, look, consternation is <laughs> probably the right word. Um, we're leading into a game that's so important to set the tone for the series. We've got the pink ball test in Adelaide. We'll come on to whether or not there's going to be another pink ball test later in the series, perhaps at the MCG, um, or talk of games in pretty much every other Australian location apart from where it was due to be played in Perth at the Optus Stadium. I, I, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. I, I'm not a meteorologist, but I was a groundsman for a short period of time. It's absolutely pissed it down for about 40 days and 40 nights. It's been biblical in Brisbane. I can't see how Mark Wood is a better option on a wicket that's likely to do a little bit, um, both in the air and off the deck. Um, Robinson, no problem with. Broad, no problem with. Wokes, um, despite his problems with the Kookaburra ball, I, I would hope that there's going to be a little bit there uh, for him. But not to pick a guy with 600 test wickets and then clarify that he's fit. If they'd have come out and say, hey, he's got a little niggle, it's a precaution, I'm fine with that. But to, to actually equivocally say that the best bowler that's ever played cricket for England is fit but's not going to play the opening test match of an Ashes series. Uh, look, there's an acronym that all the youths would use, and it, it's WTF. 
Yeah, why the face, Binksy? Because <laughs> I've never I've never seen you this mad. It's bizarre. I I think it's great work from George Bailey to get into England uh, Trick Cricket's Twitter account and post selection <laughs> news because the, the only way that this makes any sense for me is that George Bailey and um, Tony Dottomatis got into the England Cricket Twitter account and started posting selections uh, on behalf of the England selectors. Why? Why would you not pick England's best bowler if he's fit to play in the test that's probably the most likely to be bowler-friendly other than the Adelaide and potentially whatever whatever the last test match is that will likely be a pink ball test, right? If Jimmy Anderson is only going to play three tests in the series, I want him to be playing, if I was England, I want him to be playing in Brisbane, I want him to be playing in Adelaide with a pink ball, and I want him to be playing either in Canberra or Hobart or Melbourne or whatever that last test is with a pink ball. Well, anyway, it's good night and God bless from us all here <laughs> in Auckland. Um, yeah, look, I, look, I, words, words really um, fail me. Let's move on, I guess, to the preparation. Um, we talked a little bit earlier in the pod. We mentioned England have played 29 overs. Australia have played 29 overs less than that. They didn't even play their warm-up game. Um, we've got guys like Pat Cummins, who I think has been quoted as saying he hasn't had a full day in the field for 10 months or something like that. Um, who does this camp play into this sort of lack of preparation? Is this advantage Australia, advantage England, or is it even Stevens? I'll go. It's definitely advantage England because you've played Test cricket. Oh, this I don't <laughs> want to hear from you about this. I want to hear from a neutral because you're, you, of course, you're going to say it's advantage England. Uh, Raj, Lippy, who, who's it? Whose hands it playing into? I, I don't know, and I and I say that because I don't even really know that I sort of have any feel for this Australian Test team because they haven't played Test cricket. I mean, when we talked to Melinda Farrell earlier on in the week, it was. She, you know, she raised it again that they've they've barely played a game for for the last two years since COVID has been around. So too busy texting. <laughs> well, perhaps, but you know, it's so. I, you know, I guess we'll probably come onto it a bit later. Around a lot of pundits are, are saying, look, this is a you know Australia heavy favourites for this series, and a lot of fans as well saying that. But I just don't know what to make of this test team because we haven't seen them on the field. Yeah, I think it's the team that's got the advantage is probably the team that wins the toss on the first morning and can have a bowl on that that that's what's sure to be a green wicket. But Australia's probably, their, their lack of preparation is not necessarily on the field. It's also where, well, it is on the field, but it's also from, from a background or backroom perspective, they've had a lot of upheaval, a lot of questions being asked of their culture once again. Um, so... It might actually work in their favour, getting forgetting all about that and going and playing some cricket. But really, I think that this toss is important for two fragile batting lineups on a, on a green wick, a green wicket that that's just been raining for such a long time. And look, we'll you know we won't go too deep in the weeds with the Ashes stuff because, as I said, we did this uh, preview, full preview, sort of talking about all the different subplots of the series with Melinda Farrell. So you can kind of go back and, and listen to that. If you want to want to hear those thoughts, and obviously by the time we get this released, there may or may not be play uh, in the first day, uh, depending on if the weather plays ball. But Baldy, I think you wanted to touch on the fact that you know using your usual system of you want Australia to win, but you want to play them down on the podcast. Mm. You've seen a lot of people saying that it's going to be four 0 Australia, five 0 Australia, but you genuinely or just for show on the podcast think that England have a real chance in this series. Well, I think. I think Raj hit the point on the head. I can't remember who it was. might have been you, Adam. Australia's batting is pretty fragile, right? Um, so Marcus Harris was dominated by England the last time he played England and will carry some scars, regardless of how much work he's done in the past. Warner was dominated by Stuart Broad the last time he played him, and however confident 
he is as a player and as an individual, he will know that that happened. And more importantly, Stuart Broad and Jimmy Anderson will know that that happened and they will take confidence from that. Except Jimmy Anderson will be mixing the Gatorade. Yeah, and Stuart Broad might be doing likewise. So that's that. to me, that is bizarre, right? That is bizarre, number one, that the guy who dominated David Warner and dominated Marcus Harris two years ago both of them may not play in the first test. That is like a that could be a massive let off for Australia. I'm not sure if we've seen the real Manus Labuschagne in the last two years, whether or not he is the guy who averaged 33 before he got to go in 2019 and lit up the world afterwards and has averaged 50 cents. Like which which Manus Labuschagne is going to show up for this series? And the same with Steve Smith. Are we going to get the Steve Smith who struggled against India or the one who dominated England in England in 2020? So. All of these questions, Mitchell Stark's form has, has been questioned, Nathan Lyon's form has been questioned, everyone's form except for Pat Cummins, who's now carrying the burden of captain, um, has been questioned. So which Australian team are we going to get? I'm not sure. I think that there's enough fragility in there for England to take a test match or two off Australia. I genuinely think that they may that they are capable of doing that because you cannot ever write off a side that's got Ben Stokes, Joe Root, Stuart Broad and Jimmy Anderson, assuming they pick the last two. And Raj, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts around the series because I guess, you know, we talked, we've done this episode with Melinda Farrell, as we said, but, you know, you weren't on that call. What? How do you view the series going forward? Like, are you thinking it's the same thing? Australia very dominant? Yeah, I think we've we've had this conversation earlier in the episode that, that India is hard to play cricket in. Australia has become the last frontier for a lot of teams where it's just very hard to to go to Australia and play on those fast bouncy wickets it's a certain type of certain type of uh, player that that plays really well I remember Dean Brownlee played really well in South Africa and and they based that on the fact that he grew up in Western Australia mm. on those fast bouncy wickets you have to be a certain kind of batsman to score runs in Australia and and that's what it comes down to here is which team is going to eke out the most runs so I think that Australia is going to be dominant the the pink ball factor there brings England back into it and the Gabba so there is there is uh, the chance for England to sneak a couple of tests or a test probably but I think that this is going to be a dominant uh, display by Australia you mentioned fast bouncy wickets there that probably leads us on to some chat about grounds so it's been confirmed that the Optus Stadium will not be a venue on this tour and I think um, I think we'd all agree with the fact that it was impossible to ask the players to do a couple of weeks quarantine. It just wasn't going to work from a logistical perspective. They'd still be in quarantine um, after the test match had finished, I think, by my mathematics, which you know is never conducive to um, getting a game on TV. Where are we going to play this fifth test match? There's talk of the MCG with a pink ball test. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I have talked about this, Baldy. But for me, I, I, I don't see Hobart or... Canberra as venues fitting for an Ashes Test match. There's tradition in the Ashes, um, and that's been those five grounds for as long as I can remember. Mm. Um, and the spectacle of a pink ball test at the MCG is certainly um, pretty appealing. What, what are your thoughts? And if they do play at Hobart or um, at Canberra, what can we expect from a pitch's perspective, do we think? Well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll of course, have got this wrong. So I, I will predict a Melbourne pink ball test. One, because it's a massive carrot if that's a live series, right? Going into the fifth game, a day-night test would get an, a massive, massive crowd in Melbourne. Again, assuming that a uh, friend of the podcast, Joe Biden's Omnicrom, doesn't impact um, COVID lockdown restrictions in Melbourne, there'll be a massive crowd for that game, and it will be day-night. There'll be a massive money uh, money dangle there as well. So that makes the most sense as a whole picture. 
there is there is romance in in playing a test in Hobart. It's a very it's a very boutique venue. It's a very nice venue to play cricket. Australian um, captain from there. Oh no, sorry. It's yes, not. no, he's not. Um, <laughs> not anymore. I'm not sure where to go with that, <laughs> other than other than to swiftly move on and tell you about the other venue at Canberra. Canberra is also a very boutique ground. I've been to the um, Monica Oval in Canberra. I've not played there, but I've been there, and it's a very very nice ground to sit and watch cricket. Um, it will be a nice venue. It'll be one of those kind of boutique, almost English kind of venues to play. But I think you know everyone wants the test to be but, in Melbourne. I think at the, the end Canberra of the day. pitch could can be a bit um, docile and like rolled snot a little bit at Canberra. Is it fitting for an Ashes? Test? Well, I think so. But I'm I'm pretty sure that Cricket Australia will want the most bang for their buck, which is a Melbourne test match, right? I think if this was a West Indies tour or if this was a, a tour that was other than, anything other than the Ashes where they could fill the MCG for that test and get 400,000 people through the gate over the five days, I think they would think about having a test in Hobart or having a test in Canberra. But with the prospect of, of almost half a million people going and watching a, a game of test cricket, I think you have to go to the MCG. Can I just say... I'm almost being sick here listening to you guys talk about the Ashes and we can't play in can't play in Canberra and we can't play in Hobart. I mean, come on! What every else other teams allowed to go there, but England's not. <laughs> I, look, I don't think it's anything to do with England necessarily. I think it's to do with the series. It's to do with the Ashes. It's to do with the tradition around that. Um, and look, I've got to admit, I'll, I'll even say that from a, an Englishman's perspective, I found it really hard to actually see an Ashes Test match at Cardiff. Um, or an Ashes Test match at the Rose Bowl. For, you know, for me, it, it's about Headingley, it's about Edgebaston, it's about Old Trafford, it's about Lords, and it's about the Oval. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just think it is that tradition piece, uh, and that's one of the things that, as purists of the game, we still have a little bit of running through our veins. Yeah, and for the record, I'd be I'd be more than happy to watch an Ashes Test match in Hobart or Canberra. I think Cricket Australia will see four hundred thousand people and a massive amount of gate takings staring them in the face and be going, "Well, this is makes massive commercial sense." and television sense for us to have the game in Melbourne why wouldn't we have it in Melbourne so I think that's the that's the the decision making process rather than is it better for Australia to play England in Melbourne or not well sweet we're going to move on to a a new segment on the podcast and and the main reason for this is because we normally do our series predictions at this point and Baldy's going to say that it's going to be 5-0 England I'm going to say it's going to be 5-0 Australia you guys will probably sit on the fence and get splinters in your ass so we've got a new segment which is called bold Ashes predictions and bets um, suggested by the great uh, Rajiv Reddy um, on the Slack channel. Um, so I'm going to give you the honour of going first with your bold Ashes prediction or bet. Yes, and uh, you know sometimes these series predictions get a bit, a bit old, a bit tired, a bit weary, and we get them wrong anyway. So, <laughs> so let, let, let's try and be a bit more specific and make some really, really bold predictions. So we're going to make one prediction each about the series, and we're going to make one prediction each about the first test. Okay, so let's go with the, the first test first. Uh, my one is that I have Joe Root not to make double figures in either innings. We've had to edit that part of the podcast fairly heavily because there were actual crickets for about 15 <laughs> seconds after Raj's prediction there and a very hefty stare down from Binksy to our, what did you call him the other day, our health and safety, mental health and safety representative of the podcast? Um, health and wellness. Health, yeah. health, health and, and wellness, wellness yeah. So health and wellness aside, I'll go. I'll go next. Nathan Lyon will still be on three hundred and ninety-nine test wickets at the end of this test match. He will go wicketless in Brisbane. There oh, you go. Yuck! That's a that's a disgusting uh, prediction. And actually, uh, my, my I, what I think will happen is uh, a bold prediction in that the team winning the toss will score four hundred plus. 
uh, in this test. Batting first or in their third innings? Batting first. Wow. Uh, I think, uh, yeah. Assuming we get on the field, uh, all of this, we see the pitch two days out and it's green and green and green. It's just going to be a red herring. Uh, I will ca- caveat that by saying I think Australia will win the toss and get 400 plus because I really don't <laughs> rate that in the But that's my bold prediction. I've calmed down a little bit since the start <laughs> of this segment. And actually, this is genius that Jimmy Anderson doesn't play. And the reason is that I think this test match is completely washed out. There's my bold prediction. We've got three or four days of rain um, forecasting. I've, I've played a season in, in Brisbane and know um, what a thunderstorm looks like. I know that it can dry up pretty quickly. But to be honest, if it rains for the first three days, they might as well just go and play golf on the last two anyway, even if it is sunny. Um, so, yeah, wash out in Brisbane. Raj, we're going to come back round the table with our um, series bets or predictions. Yes, I've uh, I've stuck with the betting and the betting of England. Actually, I have predicted that uh, Dawood Milan is going to be the top scorer for England in this Test series. There you go. Mine mine is also to do with batters. I'm predicting boldly and heavily that three out of the four openers that play in the first Test will not be in their teams in the last Test. Take your pick as to which three out of the four you want, but three out of the four openers will be dropped at some point in the series. Wow, that's that that is bold. I don't I don't really know what to make of that because I'm I'm trying to run the numbers in my head. Who are the openers? What's going on? But very very interesting. I'm going to take the the opposite tack in that you know we, you guys have mentioned Ben Stokes coming back into the tour into the series and what a difference that makes. I think Cameron Green has a better bowling average and a better batting average than Ben Stokes in this series. Mm, ben go. Stokes has played no cricket for a long time. Mm. Cameron going. Green's going to have to take a wicket. He hasn't done that yet, so he doesn't really... I'm aware of that. It, series average or overall? Series average. Oh, series average, okay, because it's going to be hard for Cameron Green to get down to whatever yes, Ben not, Stokes' not, bowling average is if he hasn't got a wicket. career average okay. won't, be, won't be better. That's a good one. I like, those I like too, both of those. Banksy, over to you. Yeah, I've got two predictions here. Number one is I'm not going to run the podcast by the end of the series if this carries on. Jesus, just because I turn up a little bit late, I've just been bashed for the last 40 minutes. Um, so none of my batters are going to score runs. Half my openers are going to drop. And, and the great Ben Stokes is you know, going to get usurped by a young upstart. Um, my prediction is we're all going to be home in time for Christmas anyway because there's going to be another COVID outbreak. Australia will cro- close down and England will be home to eat their mince pies. Boo. <laughs> and on that and on that incredible disappointment <laughs> well look we've never got a prediction right so we might as well make them ridiculously outlandish and stupid <laughs> I don't we? yeah <laughs> good point but guys that does wrap up the podcast it has been great to be back in the room with you all despite your bashing of my countrymen we will be back of course to talk about the Ashes series as it unfolds. The rest of the New Zealand domestic summer, avid listeners will of course notice that Stu didn't get his New Zealand domestic segment into this this week in cricket. But we will be back in your feeds very, very shortly with plenty more news, views and interviews from around the world of cricket. But for now, it's good night and God bless from us all here in Auckland. See you soon. Good night.